Welcome to Beltway Talk, the podcast of the American International Automobile Dealers Association, where we examine the intersection between politics and the automobile retail industry. I'm your host, Hannah Oliver. Today's episode of Beltway Talk is sponsored by AutoAlert, revolutionary software solutions for the automotive industry. Find out more at AIADA.org. Today in the AIADA podcast studio, we're joined by Manny Manriquez, who is the general director of the Japan Automobile Manufacturers Association. He has a lot of great insight on our industry, including the impressive contributions Japanese auto manufacturers and dealers are making to the U.S. economy, as well as the challenges he encounters when informing Washington policymakers about the U.S. auto industry. Welcome to Beltway Talk, Manny. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Um, first off, can you introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us a little bit about JAMA and what it is that you do for the association? Yes. So my name is Manny Manriquez, and I am the general director of the Japan Automobile Manufacturers Association's Washington, D.C. office. Uh, so I, I lead the organization's um, public affairs efforts, and um, we actually focus both on government relations and public relations. Um and so in that capacity, what we're, really, um, what we're really here to do is to inform the public and policymakers about the U.S. presence of Japanese brand automakers. Okay. Um, and our members uh, comprise 14 uh, car, truck, bus, um, okay. and motorcycle manufacturers, also trucks, um, the manufacturers that are headquartered in Japan. Um, many of whom are invested in the United States. Um, and as you know, yeah. uh, AIADA members sell a lot of Japanese brand autos yes, around the country, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we actually have investments in 28 states, and that's, that's our direct investment. That is, actually does not include um, the auto dealerships. Um, so that 28-state presence is the, um, the U.S. headquarters, the manufacturing facilities, the R&D and design centers, and the distribution centers, and it really spans the entire country. And so our job, and I, I lead a team of, of five staff altogether, and our job is to inform the public and policymakers okay. about that presence and, and to make sure that um, it is well understood just how many jobs we support throughout the country mm-hmm. um, and the economic impact as well as the social impact because our members are really uh, great corporate citizens. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's very important for policymakers to understand those facts as they pursue policies that, that have an impact on this industry. Absolutely. Well, I think you guys have been um, pretty busy lately. Yes, yes, <laughs> that we have. Um, can you tell listeners what is your favorite thing about working in Washington, D.C.? Mm, great restaurants. <laughs> great. Yes. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think I came to D.C. in 2010 to work on policy, really to study. I, I went to Georgetown University mm-hmm. and I stayed on to work on policy issues. Um, and what I love about it is um, it's an incredibly fluid and dynamic policy environment. Um, you know, the United States um, economy mm-hmm. uh, is, is so multifaceted and obviously the auto industry is, is one of those facets, a very important one, and it's interconnected with a lot of other industries. Um, but it's, it's really fascinating and I, I frankly haven't met anyone who understands, uh, the, uh, everything there is to know about mm-hmm. the auto industry, right? I'm not, I'm not sure that person exists. Uh, if they are, I'd like to meet them. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I really enjoy talking to people about the auto industry and the issues that impact yeah. the industry because they're, they are complex and it's all very interconnected. Absolutely. Um, just to backtrack a little bit, but can you tell us how you came to Washington, D.C.? 
kind of skipped over that part. Oh, sure. I know you Absolutely. mentioned you were at Georgetown and whatnot. So if you could give a little bit of background, that'd be good. Absolutely. So I, I attended UC Berkeley uh, for my undergrad education. Okay. Um, I actually come from a national security and East Asian studies background. Um, okay. That was my academic focus. Um, and within East Asia, I really focused on Japan. So I studied Japanese language. I studied uh, the history uh, the culture, as, as well as um, sort of uh, regional economic and security issues. Um, and so when I was applying to graduate school, I was really looking at, at programs that focus specifically on security, and Georgetown mm -hmm. has a mm -hmm. security studies program. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that was my anchor, and that's what brought me here. Um, but it's the, you know, the issues uh, and, and the, the ability to, or the opportunity to really work on issues that impact policy that kept me in mm -hmm. Washington, D.C. Yeah. Um, actually worked for the Department of Energy's National Nuclear Security Administration for a year after graduate school. But I wanted to get back to working on issues more related to Japan. And uh, the, the, a job with JAMA was open at the time I was looking. And I was lucky enough to, to uh, ha have a great opportunity there. I, I started off as the Director of Government Affairs. Mm -hmm. And uh, in 2016, I took over as the general director um, for my wonderful predecessor, Ron Bookbinder, who I worked with for a few years. He really, uh, he taught me everything I needed to know to, to kind of uh, take leadership of, of the office and of our mission. Moving on to the next question. Yeah. I know that Japanese and American business cultures definitely have some distinct differences. Uh, could you kind of talk to how these differences play a role in your work and how you bridge potential gaps in cultural understanding to work towards a common goal. Sure. Um, I mean, one thing to, to understand about um, working in Japan and with, with Japanese colleagues is um, don't be late to a meeting. <laughs> if you are right on time, you're late. <laughs> so, you know, there's little things like that mm -hmm. that you sort of have to be aware of. But actually, I find that by and large, there's a, we have a lot more in common. We just have a, okay. a, a common set of deeply held values mm -hmm. um i think in business and diplomacy um and in governance and so i find a lot more common ground than i find differences uh, there are some unique aspects of japanese business and particularly the auto industry that i i do really like to to uh to think about and focus on and, and one of those is this concept of the genba have you ever heard of of the genba before no i haven't all right let me explain. So the Gemba is the place where it happens. Um, okay. It's it's where the action is. It's it's where the thing that you are building is is made. Okay. Right. So the Gemba in, in the in the automotive context would be you know the 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 plant floor where vehicles are are, are assembled and and where parts are made and, and uh -huh. put into the vehicles. Um, or it might be the R and D center where they're doing a lot of the advanced research and development of technology. Okay. So so that's that's the Gemba, and so. In, in the Japanese auto industry, there's a saying that is, go to the Gemba. If you want to learn about what, face, what challenges you're facing, some problem in the process, mm -hmm. some issue you might be having with the product, mm -hmm. you go to the Gemba and you see for yourself. Um, and one way that that's sort of translated for me is that I visit a lot of the Japanese brand auto production facilities throughout the United States. I've been to some of them in Japan as well. Mm -hmm. But that's really, that's me going to the Genba so I can really learn okay. what it looks like for, for one of our member companies' vehicles to be manufactured. Um, and uh, it's, it's one of those processes that is so complex that it, it's hard to 
sort of describe in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I often describe it as sort of a um, like a like a dance, like a yeah. like a, a well choreographed dance, because everything has to work perfectly in order for you to meet your production targets. Um, and so uh, that that's really fun, and it, it also enables me to, you know, explain what I see mm-hmm. when I go to those places, and when I when I when I see uh, really Americans building yeah. vehicles on the ground. And then I can come to DC and I can do a panel event yeah. or I can make a, you know, a visit a member of Congress and tell them what I see. What do you think is the most interesting thing you've learned from visiting all of these facilities? Going to Gemba? <laughs> Going to Gemba. Yeah. Um, I think the, the most interesting thing that I've, that I've learned is that the, the nature of the work mm-hmm. is changing. Um, it, the industry is evolving, right? We're moving towards a connected, autonomous, mm-hmm. alternative-powered uh, future. Um, but with that evolution of the technology uh, in the vehicle, mm-hmm. there's also an evolution of the manufacturing processes and the, the yeah. development processes. Um, and I think there's somewhat of a misnomer that this means you know there's automation and, and that jobs are going away. But I think what's really important to recognize is it's not that jobs are disappearing, it's a the nature of the jobs are changing. Mm-hmm. Um, they're become they're requiring more advanced skills, and they're requiring advanced uh, like STEM training and advanced degrees. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got engineers on the floor, you've got software experts, um, and so you know, I think that's that's very important for really everyone in the industry and you know policymakers to understand that along with this change mm-hmm. comes various challenges but if we understand the change we can address the challenges more effectively and so that's i I love kind of observing that on the ground and i love thinking about you know sort of solutions ways to explain the issues that i think can help uh connect the dots for people you know here in washington or around the country who, who haven't actually seen it for themselves yeah a lot of policymakers haven't um yes So what kind of policy issues are you guys primarily concerned with? What are you working on right now and how, how do you address them? The main thing, uh, well, largely we focus on international Mm -hmm. issues. Um, and so the main issue these days is trade. Yes. Uh, and I know Mm -hmm. AIADA is also grappling with trade issues and as are all of our other colleagues in the auto industry. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it is an immense challenge. Um, again, it's, 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 it's very complex. Like the auto yeah. industry itself, trade is very complex. That it is. <laughs> yes. Um, so <laughs> to, say the yeah, least. to say the least. Yeah. And it, so it requires a lot of deep thinking, um, talking to experts in different areas of mm-hmm. trade. Um, I really enjoy talking to think tank experts who can sort of educate me and my team on economic policy and we can educate them on the nature of the auto industry. And it's a, yeah. it's a real trade-off. Yeah. There's a give and take. Okay. Um, so I know you've talked a little bit about visiting plants. Um, could you talk yes. about the contribution of Japanese auto manufacturers in the U.S.? Primarily, I'm kind of interested in what kind of misconceptions you encounter among policymakers. Sure. Um, and what you think is important for them to know about. Yes. I think there is a misnomer in the auto industry that there are American manufacturers Mm -hmm. and there are foreign manufacturers. Mm -hmm. I I think that is a a false dichotomy. Yeah. Um, 
the fact is, and you know, I'll, I'll of course speak for Japanese brand automakers specifically, but the same can be said for other international companies is we build, develop and build vehicles here in the United States, mm-hmm. specifically for us consumers. Yes. Right. And JAMA members are very focused on that, very focused on providing vehicles that us consumers love. And so, um, you know, we have a R and D and design presence that goes back more than 40 years. Yeah. Um, even before the first auto plant, well, uh, Japanese brand auto plant was established in 1982. Um, and so we have a long history of really, you know, making sure that we are taking into account the preferences mm-hmm. of U.S. consumers when we design and develop mm-hmm. these vehicles. So I think one of the points that that helps to underscore the fact that there really is no difference between American automakers yeah. and so-called foreign automakers or international automakers mm-hmm. is is you know, the, the number of jobs we provide in the United States. And I think, you know, that along with, uh, the amount of vehicles that we produce in the U S really underscores the fact that, uh, Japanese brand automakers are integral to the U S auto industry Mm -hmm. and therefore the U S economy. So, um, our members provide more than 93,000 direct U S jobs. And that's, yeah, it's a huge footprint. Um, and that, translates into um, the production of more than, well, roughly one third of all vehicles built in the U.S. Wow. So yeah. it's a huge presence. Yeah. And those are Americans who are, are, are developing, designing and building those vehicles. And we actually, uh, our members have dozens of vehicles that they uh, design uh, here in the United States yeah. or they, they, they do the engineering for in the United States uh, and that they build here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think it, it really, um, we're able to sort of tap into the local talent yeah. uh, uh, that the U S has to offer. And you've got, you've got wonderful places, you know, sort of epicenters of innovation, like Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. where they do a lot of the high tech R and D, or you've got, you know, the Detroit area where a lot of the engineer automotive engineering and testing happens. Um, or you've got Southern California where a lot of the design happens. Yeah. And people graduate with advanced degrees from specialized programs and they go to work for an automaker. Yep. There's a really good chance they're going to end up working for a Japanese brand automaker. True. Yeah. Um, kind of moving over to the trade and tariff topic once again, which sure. has obviously been fairly big recently. Yeah. Um, I know your chairman, Mr. Toyota, released a statement stating JAMA's disappointment with the president's stance on auto imports and particularly his 232 proclamation that essentially found that imported autos and parts are a national security threat. Yes. Um, what are you guys doing in Washington to combat the rise in protectionism that we've seen in recent years? Yeah, I think the key is to do our level best mm-hmm. to explain the nature of the industry because um, there is no taking this industry back to decades past, mm-hmm. right? Um, a vehicle itself is a very complex machine you know you've got 40 onboard computers um you've got upwards of 30,000 parts in any given vehicle and the technological progress that we've made in in automotive technology is is really impressive and 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 we want to continue to develop advanced vehicles right they're safer they're more reliable they're more fuel efficient Mm -hmm. um and these these this brings benefits to drivers and to their families and so first and foremost 
we need to uh, we need to educate stakeholders about what a vehicle is and how they're produced because they have so many parts yeah. and because so many of those parts are advanced and a lot of the inputs can only be get, you know um, they can only be imported or built in certain areas. Mm-hmm, yeah. now, we do a lot of that here and actually Japanese brand automakers have a really high proportion of U.S. content and North American content. But there are also parts and inputs uh, that are needed from other parts of the world. And this is, I would say, um, you know, you've got sort of three levels of integration in automotive production. Um, You've got sort of local integration where you get a lot of parts from from the local area. And then you've got regional integration, which is really North America, right? There's, Mm -hmm. There's a vast supply chain network in North America that we rely upon. And then you've got the international supply network as well. And I think one thing that tends to get lost a little bit in the shuffle is that there's a lot of value added in R&D and design as well. So when you include those aspects, you've got a value chain, not just a supply chain, right? And the U.S. has a particular strength in automotive technology, innovation, R&D and design. And so I think, you know, that really speaks to the strength of the United States. Yeah but also the fact that we can't go it alone. We can't do all this alone. Um, and so we really have to, I think, um, pay close attention to how value chains function um, and mm-hmm. how, how they can be supported to be mm-hmm. very efficient, to make sure that the vehicles we're building in the U.S. are competitive globally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that's critical, I think. So um, in terms of uh, understanding the role of trade, this means that you know you really want to open up opportunities not close them off through tariffs right yeah. so when you add tariffs you are adding production costs mm-hmm. you are adding costs to the end product that goes to the consumer and as i mentioned before you know our priority is to provide great vehicles to the american consumer and we can do that best if there are not sort of these choke points and and yeah. uh, sort of you know difficulties and rising costs in in, in the value chain so kind of taking it to a little bit of a higher level, we talked a lot about your your interactions with policymakers and what you're doing, but um, what do you think are the biggest messages that the American public should know about the American auto industry as it relates to trade tariffs and Japanese automakers here in the U.S.? Right. I mean, I think, well, perhaps first and foremost, and this this really um, goes beyond and is more important than trade itself as an issue area remember that the vehicles that you are buying at your dealership are always have um, some element of, you know, a role for American workers. Mm -hmm. And I know this isn't exactly popular, but even imported vehicles do, right? Yeah. Um, You've got distribution, sales, Mm -hmm. uh, insurance, and all these other industries that are involved in importing. And that's, that includes parts as as well as, as finished vehicles. Mm -hmm. But I think it's important to remember that, when you are buying a vehicle in the United States, you are supporting American jobs. And it doesn't matter whether it's a Japanese brand vehicle, Korean brand, mm-hmm. German brand, or you know, a Detroit 3 brand yeah. vehicle, they all touch American lives. And, and one thing, I, you know, I, I like to throw data points out there to kind of underscore my point. Um, we have a long history, almost 40 years of manufacturing in the United States. We recently calculated that uh, we, our members have built 84 million vehicles wow. in the U.S. since they started manufacturing here. 
impressive. Yeah, it's it's amazing. And and yeah. there's frankly there's no way to calculate just how many American hands had a role in developing and building and selling those vehicles. Yeah. And in servicing the vehicles after they're sold. Mm-hmm. Right. There's just nobody has could come up with a calculation method for that. I'm afraid. Um, yeah. <laughs> but it's you know hundreds of millions, billions. Yeah. It's up there. That's for <laughs> it's sure. Up there. Well, uh, Manny, you have been very insightful today, I would say. Um, and I have one last question for you. Yes. I always ask everybody, but uh, what is your dream car? Sure. Um, I would say my dream car nowadays doesn't exist yet. Okay. Right. So it's the car that I can get into. And I, you know, I feel like I'm at a live Rolling Stones concert or something <laughs> like that. And I can just enjoy the ride and it can get me from point A to point B, right? You can almost do that if you have a really good sound system. I could get behind that. (laughs) That sounds like my kind of dream car, actually. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) you know, sooner or later, they're they're coming. Yeah. Um, And I think it's very exciting to sort of think about where the industry is headed. Mm -hmm. um, Because, you know, it's not so much a matter of will uh, will the technology be developed. It's already being developed. But it's a matter of, you know, when can we address the conditions Mm -hmm. of the transition to a more autonomous vehicle future? What exactly will that look like? Actually, nobody really knows exactly what it'll look like and when it'll happen. Yeah. Um, So it's it's, it's kind of fun to to think about, you know, the the path ahead for us, uh, because I think, uh, you know, the auto industry is integrated with high tech uh, and the tech industry is going to have a big role and already has a big role in developing these, the vehicles of the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, there'll be further integration and advancement. And I look forward to, you know, putting my kids in a vehicle uh, that is much safer and where they can do their homework while they drive, you know, where they're headed off to school or, or, or coming home. That's a good idea. Well, <laughs> that wraps up everything I had to talk to you about today. Did you have anything you wanted to add? I do, actually. You know, I, I, I'm a, I have a interesting history before I started studying international relations. Um, I'm a musician and, mm-hmm. and, and recording artist and I haven't, haven't been doing as much music these days cause, uh, you know, trade issues are keeping me yeah. a little too busy. Um, but you know, there's an interesting connection, I think, between people in, um, the creative arts, like mm-hmm. language arts, music and the industry as it is today. Mm-hmm. And as, as we sort of try to communicate about it, because we are in communications roles, right? And so when, yeah. when you write a song, when you perform a song, you're communicating an idea. And so what we are doing here uh, in Washington, D.C., and when we visit locations around the country, is we are trying to communicate ideas. And I like to think we're doing it in a way that's somewhat lyrical. Mm -hmm. Because you don't have, you know, 20 hours to sit down with somebody and explain to them everything there is to know about the auto industry and trade, et cetera. Yeah, that would take a long time. (laughs) Exactly. So you have to be able to convey it in a way that really connects with people. And I think you know, it's fun because I'm able to use my background as a songwriter to kind of think about how do I convey these ideas and these messages lyrically so that they connect with people and people kind of respond to them and they resonate. Thank you so much for joining us in the podcast studio, Manny, to tell us all about your work with JAMA. Well, my pleasure. And that wraps up this episode of Beltway Talk. As always, we invite you to drop us a line and let us know how we're doing and suggest any topics you would like covered on a future episode. My email is oliverh at aiada.org. Thanks again for listening and join us next time for Beltway Talk.